Welcome to episode number four of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for July 5th, 2016. I just asked Mike how he was doing. Yeah, um, I'm doing good. Uh, didn't do much for the 4th of July except just rest and listen to loud fireworks outside my window. And uh, that's pretty much about it, really. I don't think I did anything other than that, except catch up with some stuff on YouTube. Oh, and rant about Independence Day Resurgence on my YouTube channel, which is a piece of shit. I didn't, uh, I didn't see it. Resurgence, but I did I did see your uh, ra- uh, your why you love the first Independence Day. And, oh, thank uh, you. It was pretty compelling. I, I was I was very entertained. I was I was literally on Twitter unfollowing thousands of people while I was <laughs> listening to your because I realized my Twitter account was full of just shell accounts that like follow me and i'll follow you back so i was like yeah i need to yeah i, I want to have real people on twitter that yeah. I'm i have some people follow me on twitter but i i don't really know it's like one of those things i don't really care i'm like cool all right you follow me on twitter all right i just don't yeah. see how people get it to be a viable like yeah i don't know either i have no idea um but yeah anyway yeah welcome to episode four um we have three more unsolved mystery segments for you folks and uh, I was thinking we'd start out with Cindy James, which was titled Scared to Death on the Bizarre Murders set. One of the most puzzling, like, bizarre cases I can think of. Yeah. I'm just like, I still don't know what happened. So what happened was a 44-year-old Cindy James, she was found dead in front of an abandoned house somewhere in uh, Canada. It was Vancouver, Canada. She was drugged and hogtied. Authorities believe she died of either accidental causes or she committed suicide. Now, Before, let's, let's, yeah, let's, let's review that for a second. She's found bound uh, her feet and hands behind her back with a black nylon yeah. stocking around her neck. And the police say it was either an accidental death or a suicide. Yeah. Just let that sink in for a second. Not a murder, but a suicide or an accidental death. I know. Like, that was really puzzling. It just made me just... That's just some foreshadowing. That's some foreshadowing about what this ca- how weird this case gets. So, before her death, she put in over 100 different reports to the police. Five of them were for violent attacks. So, yeah, that's a lot of different reports. And apparently these reports uh, costed the police, like, half a million dollars. <laughs> Uh, to investigate all of these different reports. Her parents believe that she was murdered, and uh, four months after her husband separated from her, they got divorced, Cindy started to get disturbing phone calls from some unknown person. Sometimes it was just a voice. Other instances, it was just whispering or just cold, chilling silence. Which sounds like a horror movie. It sounds like when a stranger calls. (laughs) Yeah, and I'd like to just add a little a little side note to this. Like, like when you said that her parents believed that she was murdered, even though everyone else believed it was either, you know, a suicide or whatever. Okay, the family members are always going to believe the best about their deceased yeah. loved one. On any of these Unsolved mystery segments or any murder case that you ever see, they never want to believe the worst. I, I just always think that's kind of... Uh, it's kind of like, and her parents think she was murdered. And it's like, well, of course they do, you know, because they're not going to want to believe, 
that their kid was crazy or other murder cases where their kid did something shitty and and maybe they had it coming to them or whatever. It's like the parents yeah. always want to. I just I think that's funny. That's just kind of like it just shows how the it's parent, a trope. It's it, an unsolved mysteries trope, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> parental eternal optimism that their child is the little angel that they always believed them to be. Yeah, so sometime, so then three months later, the disturbances started to escalate. At night, she heard prowlers, her porch lights were smashed, and her phone lines were severed. She also started to receive bizarre cut-and-paste letters. And those really, like, stood out to me. Like, they were really creepy. Like, there was one that said, like, see you soon, Cindy. And there was, like, a picture of some woman with, like, a... It looked like something from a horror movie. Yeah. With, like, a knife to her throat or something. Yeah, they were, like, little, like, scenes, like, uh, you'd see in, like, an ad or something. But, like, yeah, it almost looked like a scene from, like, some kind of a, a like, a snuff film or something. The girl had, like, you know, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, the notes were really creepy. They were those, uh stereotypical, like, cop, you know, cut-and-paste notes that you see in the movies with, uh, you know, letters from all kinds of different fonts and sizes yeah. and all that, yeah. So a local friend went to check on Cindy, and she ended finding her... She found her on the ground with a nylon tied tightly around her neck. And this became a recurring thing that would happen to her. Uh, she moved to a new house, hoping that that would stop the attacks... She even painted her car and changed her last name, and this didn't seem to stop any of these things because they, they, these attacks happened at her new home as well. And so the police questioned her, but she would not tell her whole story. She was reluctant to talk, and the police believed that this is not normal behavior of a victim, which it isn't really, if you think about it. So then Cindy told her mother that she wouldn't talk because the man who was tormenting her put a knife to her throat and said, if you talk, your sister will be next. And then your mother, just keep quiet. Which, which right, th- right there, that doesn't make sense because no, usually, usually these kind of people, if they're going to go out and stalk you and harass you, they're going to say, if you go to the police, I will kill your family. They yeah. don't they don't say, oh, you can go to the police and that's fine. Just don't tell them anything. No, no. Yeah. They yeah. don't they don't say that. They go, if you even go to the police, your family's dead. So the yeah. fact so the fact that she was saying, oh, if I tell you you guys what hap what you know, what's happening, he'll kill my family. But the just the fact that she was there in the police station, if if, if the guy was serious guy or girl, I guess, uh, yeah. that then that should have been enough to trigger whatever he was going to do anyway. Yeah, exactly. But it, but it wasn't, so... No, I guess not. Kind of sketchy. Yeah, it is. So then uh, Cindy ended up hiring a private investigator, and he ended up hearing some strange sounds coming from a two-ray radio that Cindy gave him, and he went straight to her house, and he found Cindy lying on the floor in the living room, and a note was pinned with a knife through her hand. And I'm just thinking about this as, like, I mean, if she did do all this herself, like, that's a lot of work. Right. It's a lot of shit to put yourself through. The knife was pinned through her hand, meaning it penetrated the both inside uh, or the outside of the hand. It went through the hand into the floor. So, I mean... When 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 the body was autopsied, and this is kind of jumping ahead, but just yeah. to make the point I'm trying to make now, that when the body was autopsied, they found uh, 
uh, lethal dosage of uh, morphine and other drugs in her. So yeah. perhaps because she would have these fainting, you know, that like anytime they question her about, it, she'd always say, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember what happened. Maybe she was drugging herself when it kicked in. She was, you know, high out of her mind where she wasn't feeling any pain. And that's what gave her the ability to stab a knife yeah. through her hand or something like that. That's a possibility. Yeah. So, yeah, one and a half million dollars was investigating was invested in investigating these cases. No evidence was found. There were no eyewitnesses. I mean, if there's a hundred different incidents, you would think there would be at least one eyewitness. But and only Cindy was the person that saw these things, according to Neil Hall, that is. And he was a fun character, you know. In this I loved I loved that guy. Yeah, yeah, he was he was the uh, reporter or journalist investigating the case for like the Vancouver Sun or something. Yeah, and, I don't know why I liked that guy so much, but he just he seemed uh, he seemed very Marty McFlyish to me. Uh, he reminded me of Jim Carrey. That's who he reminded me of, because Jim Carrey is also a Canadian, I believe. Yeah, he is. So it's that same sort of sort of Jim Carrey Canadian sort of you know attitude, or somebody from like Kids in the Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I could see the Kids in the Hall comparison, but he was he was just he was he was a little bit snarky. I guess maybe that's yeah. why I liked him because you don't yeah. normally you don't normally see those kind of personalities on Unsolved Mysteries. Now, now this guy yeah. at one point was uh, saying, you know, like, because there was a, a point where Cindy started spending the night with her friend, uh, which uh, you you didn't mention earlier, but her friend's name is Agnes Woodcock. And if that's yeah. not the most amazing name I've ever heard, <laughs> I, I don't know what is. But she was spending several times, she would spend the night with Agnes Woodcock and her husband, Tom. And yeah. one, one night, Cindy woke them up well after midnight, and she said she heard a noise and went downstairs. She got uh, Agnes and Tom to come with her, and when they opened the basement, they saw that it was filled with flames, and when they went to go call for help, the phone was dead. Then the husband, Tom, goes outside to try to get the neighbors to call 911, and he sees a man standing there on the curb, and then the man ran away. Yeah. Uh, again, police suspected that she staged the incident, um, and then it cuts back to this journalist who's investigating it, and he's talking about, there are no fingers on the outside of the windowsill. Yeah, no she, fingerprints. She said no she, dust. she said she was out walking her dog late at night. Now, if someone was being attacked, why would they go out and walk their dog at 3 a.m. in the morning? Does that make sense? <laughs> and it's just how kind of how he was like saying yeah, it. it was just it, it was like, totally I, I totally agree with him though. If they but the guy could have been wearing gloves for one, so that might be the, the reason why there's no fingerprints. But I, I didn't mention that because that was later. But uh, but actually, yeah. I agree with him, though. If you're worried about getting attacked, why would you walk your dog at 3 a.m.? Alone. <laughs> I'm just... It does sound kind of crazy to me. So, but yeah, and even more crazy is that she kept receiving these phone calls for months later after all this stuff. And... But she was under surveillance for 24 hours from time to time with 14 officers, like 14 different police officers. And when this was occurring, nothing happened. But when surveillance was taken off, the threatening phone calls and incidents started to show up again, which that really does make that that does that does bring, uh, I don't know, credence to the the store, the story that the police are trying to tell that she was crazy. <laughs> And she did all this stuff herself. 
because why would it stop? But then again, the the parents come in and they're all like, well, it stopped because why would the killer doesn't or the person who's harassing her? Why would he do it when the police are there? Which yeah. is understandable. Yeah. And I mean, we don't know what kind of surveillance this is. I mean, is this a patrol, yeah. is this a patrol car in front of the house? You know, I mean, the, yeah. this is a suburban neighborhood. They can't exactly hide out in hills and look, look at her house with binoculars. No, it's not a stakeout. Right. So, I mean, yeah. if, if, I, if I'm wanting to harass someone, if me, Josh, is wanting to harass Mike, you know, outside of his house, and he lives in a suburban neighborhood, and I see a fucking, if I see any other cars there besides her, I would be more reluctant and, you know, unwilling to, yeah. I'm going to wait till they go away and keep fucking with you after that. December 11, 1985, she was found dazed and semi-conscious in a ditch. Suffering from a form of hypothermia, she was wearing a man's work boot and glove. The same black nylon stocking was tied tightly around her neck. Once again, she had no memory of the attack. Which that does kind of lead, okay, she has no memory of this, so that kind of does, oh, did she, really, did she drug herself? Because that would make sense that you would have no memory of this stuff if you drugged yourself. And when it comes to talking to the police, and as far as legally speaking, uh, saying you have no recollection is a valid uh, way of pretty much pleading the fifth. It's a valid way of, of not divulging too much information that yeah. you don't want to divulge. So yeah. a lot of times on these shows that I watch, people will say they don't remember just to get the cops, you know, uh, away from that line of questioning, you know. Mm. They might know good and well what happened, but they can just as easily say, oh, I don't recall or I, I don't remember. Yeah. So, you know, who's to say that she legitimately because, you know, to me, like, I mean, my memory isn't the best in the world. But if some crazy shit's happening, I mean, the brain tends to grab on to really yeah. dramatic things that happen and, and won't let go. I mean, Sometimes, though, these traumatic events do cause, you know, bouts of amnesia. So there is that kind of sometimes, thing as well. Sometimes, sometimes. But when you're her, but when when you have five incidences and you're constantly being yeah. harassed, I mean, it seems like one of those times you'd be like, yeah, you know, I happen to finally I can give you a, a you know, a artist yeah. tradition or I can give I can tell the sketch artist what this guy, you know, something. Yeah, but, but she doesn't. So then that kind of makes you feel like, well, maybe she is just tormenting herself, which is honestly pretty sad if that is the case. She was admitted to a mental hospital after, you know, all this stuff started to go, you know, sour, started to go even crazier. And the doctor feared that she was becoming suicidal. He believed he believed her tales of being attacked. But he also felt the worst thing for her was the fact that no one believed her. And think about that. If this actually was happening to her, or if you put yourself in her shoes, and then nobody believes you, that would be very depressing. That really would. I feel like if it was happening to me, and it was legitimate, there are are 101 different courses of action you can take and it just seems like she didn't take any of those courses yeah. of action that she could have yeah. taken exactly it's almost like she bared this burden of oh no 
uh, you know, it has to play out the way that it's playing out. And I'm not going to try. See, that's one thing that annoys me about other people is is like you know when they're going through something and they're not and you try to give them suggestions you try to give them advice and they go no no you know i like people who are like depressed or whatever well why don't you try this why don't you try that no 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 i'd rather just you know wallow in my pit and it's like well if you're not willing to try anything then you can't really expect to any different results yeah and that seems to be the case with her she just you know if if this was a let's just come from the angle that this was there was somebody legitimately harassing her why wouldn't you switch it up cuz i mean this happened to her for years yeah years who would want to live their life years. who would want to live yeah. their life that way i mean after the first constantly terrorized yeah after the first 6 months i would be like i'm getting a gun i'm getting pepper spray i'm 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 going fucking home alone on this motherfucker i'm setting up traps i'm setting up <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd go Macaulay Culkin on them and, and yeah. lure them in and, and set up all kinds of cartoony traps and hilarious situations. I'd sell the rights to Hollywood. Oh, wait, I'm getting a little carried away. But no, I mean, <laughs> I would, uh, you know, I would try something uh, different or or at the very fucking least, if it's happening for years on end, I'd move back in with my parents or move in yeah. with somebody else and stay there permanently. And at least, you know, if she is mentally unstable then they would be able to witness that and observe that yeah yeah so yeah on uh so then she was released and from the hospital and she told her parents that she thinks she knows who the person is that is tormenting her and but she and she says that the police can't solve the case she will i guess six years later i guess finally she's like i'm gonna do something about this and she says when it's all over i will explain everything to you but i can't tell you now how ominous. Yeah, and then on May 25th, 1989, six years after the first troubling phone call, she disappeared. The same day, her car was found in a nearby neighborhood parking lot. Inside were groceries and a wrapped gift. Blood was found on the driver's side door, and items from Cindy's wallet were under the car. And two weeks later, her body was found at the abandoned house. And Cindy it, James's death had all the earmarks of a sadistic murder. Her hands and feet were bound together behind her back. A black nylon stocking was tied tightly around her neck. But an autopsy revealed that she had died from a large amount of morphine and other drugs. So when the cops show up, it has all the earmarks of a sadistic murder, yet the cause of death was a drug overdose. Yeah. Obviously, if you're harassing someone and you want to kill them, and and you are sadistic, which the the stalking around the neck and all this other kind of stuff shows signs of sadism, if that's the sadomasochism, you know, yeah, sadism. Yeah, sadism. Th- there you go. Um, because you know the Boston Strangler, he had a bunch of yeah. kind of earmarks. That's what it reminded me of is the Boston Strangler case. Right, it definitely had this sort of serial killer vibe. But how they would always finish finish the job was they they were out for blood and most of the times these people are I mean they there there would have been a you know why were there cuts and abrasions the first time and all these other times and the paring yeah. knife through the hand you know it's almost like this guy switched up his uh his his M O you know like which all, doesn't make any sense when it comes to these type of killers they usually just they keep the same mo right and so all of a sudden at the end there's no wounds on her whatsoever and he decides yeah. to drug her 
Yeah, that's the thing, the drugging her thing, when you think about it, is kind of like, why would he do that? Wouldn't he want her to suffer, you know, if he's this type of sadistic killer? And that brings up another point. ODing from morphine is not a bad way to go. It's it's a If you're going to kill yourself in any way, ODing from morphine is what hospice does all the time to, I mean, they don't overdose them, but I mean, sometimes they do. Sometimes they give them a, an amount of morphine that's going to take them out. And that's, that is a very pleasant way to go. I mean, it's one of the more powerful painkillers out there. You pretty much just fall asleep. So why, yeah. why would this guy, you know, uh, and, and two, not even, not even acknowledging the fact it's not easy to make somebody take something you know, I mean, unless he injected her with it, which I don't believe they said that in the segment. I think she ingested it because, yeah. yeah and I, in fact, I know she would have had to have ingested it because if if he had injected it into her, she it would have been, taken effect almost immediately. But the fact is that they said, yeah, you know, 15 minutes to an hour. They said it took, takes 15 minutes an hour to take an effect. Right. So she adjusted it orally, you know, and, and to try to even if someone's tied up to try to get them to ingest something, you know, w without them spitting it back out. I mean, that's that's difficult right there. So, I mean, it, it's weird. You know, it's like yeah. I, I at first going into this, I, I tried to keep an open mind of like, I really didn't know exactly what happened. But the more I think about it out loud, the more I'm like, you know what? This really does kind of sound like a suicide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a knot specialist. He tied the same knots that were found on Cindy. Cindy, I can't say her damn name for some reason. On Cindy in three minutes. So he was able to do the same knots while in three minutes. So conceivably, this is possible. Even after ingesting the morphine. So the police believe Cindy James committed suicide in an elaborate fashion. But her parents believe someone is getting away with murder. So now, if we're taking the suicide route, you got to think, okay, well, the first thought is uh, schizophrenia. She's having yeah. hallucinations. She's par paranoid schizophrenic, delusions mm. of grandeur, all, all, the, all the checklists of a typical schizophrenic. She was a nurse, though. Right. So that's what's interesting. She was a is nurse. This... She, was, she was able to function. Yeah. It, normal in every other way seemingly except for this this one aspect in normal uh schizophrenics they they can't they every oh. single day they're having hallucinations and it inter interferes with their life to the point to where they either have to get on some medication or they get committed so but she wasn't doing that she it's only like you know, with schizophrenia, you can't just manufacture one specific hallucination. I mean, it's it could be anything, you know. Yeah. And it and it just gets worse. But she, like her only, I guess, hallucination, if you want to call it that, would be this person attacking her, and that that just doesn't stack up. So the only no. other the only other conclusion would be that she was knowingly and very sanely staging this herself yeah which makes it but, even more bizarre yeah it does like you were like why would any sane person do this to themselves now it, i mean it, we we do have uh precedents you know like munchausen syndrome where the mother you know where the mother you know makes a child sick to bring attention to herself or yeah she, you know things like this you know are in the psych psychology uh cycle whatever the psychology dictionary so she could have been doing this to bring attention to herself which she was doing, you know, yeah, and there are people absolutely. out there who 
who will call 911 at the slightest, you know, disturbance just because they want the attention out there. And, and she was single and she was in her 40s. And um, and funny enough, they never mentioned the ex-husband as, as a suspect or anything yeah. like that. So obviously he wasn't, you know, maybe this was some way to get his attention. They didn't really explore that angle very much. Yeah. And I, I think there's I think there's more about this case because I remember reading in some message boards that there's just like a whole book I think that's like about this particular case I think that like has even more info, info information and even more bizarre type of stuff but also mysteries only had like a certain amount of time you know to cover this case oh. so yeah I I I don't know exactly I think it's on like the Unsolved Mysteries message boards and stuff like that I remember reading about it and they were saying like yeah there's like even more crazy stuff that you know with this particular case it's honestly if there's any truth to this you know to her attacker it, it, it's terrifying to anybody to think that there's somebody who's so sadistic that they would just keep on just tormenting somebody but not to the point where they're going to kill them. They just keep on with these phone calls, these disturbing notes. And then eventually, like six years later, they finally kill the kill you. Like, that's just that's terrifying. But at the same time, it's not very realistic. So that's one of the things that really just is very puzzling about this particular case. There are some things that might point to murder. The, there's other things that point to suicide and I could see why the police lean towards suicide, but there's all other things that just, I don't know. Like after this is, this segment is over, I'm just still scra left scratching my head being like, I, I don't know. I really don't know for sure. At least for me personally, I don't know. And there's not enough there for me to be like, yeah, definitely 100% suicide or 100% murder. Yeah, it's it's really a it's really a toss up because, you know, if she was this kind of person with this kind of personality of needing attention, you'd think the parents would have seen it earlier in her life or she would have displayed yeah. these kind of traits early in her life. And, you know, because family members, you know, you know, your kids and if your kid is doing, oh, well, you know, Cindy always had a, a flair for the dramatic and all that, but they never said yeah. any of that. They, they painted her to be a very sane, reasonable person. So again, it's kind of like, well, I don't know, you know, maybe there is some more to this. I mean, think about the blood found on the driver's side door. Like, did they even test whose blood that was? Was it Cindy's? Like, I mean, we didn't really know for sure. And the guy, the guy who, when Tom Woodcock stepped out of his house and called to the guy standing out in front of the yard when the house was burning down, yeah. the guy runs away. What was that about? Exactly. Damn. Why would you run away? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what's the reason to run away? If somebody say, help, we got fire, you know. I don't know. The only reason why the guy would run away is, I would think, is because you know he might have set the fire. I don't know, or he's just afraid of fire. I, I, I if no you have any information regarding the Cindy James case, please write to Unsolved Mysteries, P.O. Box one one zero four, my ass. <laughs> I guess you don't remember the the PO box number. <laughs> no, but it would be it would be badass it, me as a fan if I uh, memorize that whole uh, ending uh, little uh, yeah deposition there. 
You can't send it to the PO box anyway because it go to it wouldn't go to Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know. I don't know who has that PO box now. It just so goes I'm, through a tube that that comes out of the side of a mountain overlooking an ocean, and it just goes straight into the ocean now. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that this is a case that I definitely thought was interesting and intriguing because of all the different aspects of it and the whole sort of suicide thing that the police believe, and there is some possibility to it, but. Yeah, it's definitely a case that I'm just like, I don't know. And there's a reason why it was on an Unsolved Mysteries. Because as far as I'm concerned, it's an unexplained death. Yeah, I mean, if you have any chance to go out and watch this segment, I highly recommend it. This is one of the, uh, this is one of the better ones uh, from the show. I will say that's one of the things with the uh, Ultimate Collection. They they got a lot of segments right on there. I mean, they, they really did handpick some of the be- better ones, and this is yeah. one that's on there. And uh, it's always been one of my favorites. It's glad that's why I'm glad you selected it because uh, you know I mean, it's I, like a movie script. It really yeah, is. Yeah. It, it 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 sounds like something you would see in like a horror film or a TV movie of the week or something. All right, do we have do we have any more meat to throw on this one, or can we go to our... Not really. I think we're good. Uh, I was thinking uh, the next one I have here is the Texas UFO. Texas uh, UFO. Everything's bigger in Texas. Apparently so, and so is uh, radiation. <laughs> radiation poisoning. Uh, this On December 29th, 1980, on a road on the outskirts of Houston, Texas, Betty Cash, Vicki Landrum, and Vicki's grandson, Colby, were returning home from dinner. Around 9 p.m., they saw a bright light in the sky. They said that you could see it through the trees, and they traveled for about close to a mile, and it kept getting closer and closer as they went along. And then they started to feel this intense heat. Then Vicky told Betty to stop the car. They abruptly stopped the car, and the heat was so intense that Vicky's handprint was embedded into the front dash of the car. Like that really stood out to me. I was like, yeah. "Damn, that, that's that, that's really hot." <laughs> so Betty then decided she needed to see what the object was for herself, and the object was floating near the car. And she says she describes it as a diamond-shaped object with four points. The one at the top was rounded, and so were the sides. And at the bottom, flames were shooting out. And the effect in this particular segment. It's 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 not it's kind of dated, but you know it's it's not the worst thing ever. I I'll take this over a, an asylum movie, uh, visual effect any day of the week. You know those sci-fi channel movies, yeah, like Gatoroid or what Mega Shark versus Gatoroid or whatever. Um, but yeah, Betty says that the heat was tremendous. She felt like she was burning from the inside out, and she was justifiably horrified. She was afraid to even move. And when she reached for the door handle, it was so hot that she could not even hold on to it. And then the object started to move away. And then you, just when you think things, you know, would just stop being crazy, uh, it gets even crazier. Because just moments later, a large squadron of helicopters descended on the area. They counted about 23 large helicopters with double rotors. uh, And they believed that they had to belong to the Army. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I just think it's hilarious to think like the U.S. government, it's like 
it's like those crazy UFOs, they've gotten out again. And it's like, they just fly <laughs> yeah. around and run amok. And, and then you see all these helicopters like, get, well, get back here, you little bastard. You know, like yeah. all, these, all these like, you know, air, like helicopters flying by. It's like, you know, there's some shit going down when unmarked helicopters, you know, yeah. black, you know. It's not helico- just one, it's 23. Yeah, that's some, uh, that's some, hey, you know, get the fuck back here kind of actions by the U.S. government, because that's, uh, <laughs> that that's definitely not uh, a walk in the, you know, when, when a fucking felon escapes or they're on the search for a guy, there's like one helicopter. Yeah. Not, not 23 of them. So, and with the 23 helicopters, I also think that's an indication that I don't think this is of the U.S. government. If this object was of U.S. government origin, why the hell would 23 helicopters be chasing after it? You know, it, I don't know. It could be one of those things like if it like, OK, going back to gleaming technology from the UFOs, like let's say that this is a test uh, a craft uh, gleamed yeah. from UFO technology. It could have been those helicopters could have been there for damage control or they could have been there there could have been all kinds of yeah, machines. But that's, that's that's a lot of helicopters. For that is a shit like ton that. of helicopters. That that is. I mean, one or two I could see for damage control. Twenty three. Well, see, so, that's that's the interesting thing about all these UFO stories. Anytime you hear a UFO story, one thing that I have noticed is that every almost every time you hear a story, the craft itself always differs. Yeah. Like here we have something that looks basically like um, an acorn almost, but more more squared off just to give people a mental visualization Uh of what this thing looks like. It's all it's it's appeared to be all black and you you had helicopters chasing after it. Now, most other cases of UFOs, uh, again, I'm referencing the Belgian UFO case. there's a case where they got in fighter jets and they chased after this UFO and it was ascending and descending at rates yeah. that were so fast it would have killed a normal human being. So it was clear that these UFOs, if they don't want to be caught, they won't be and they can easily escape. So the fact that they chose to use helicopters to pursue this thing instead of a faster craft like a fighter jet or something also says something too. Well, didn't the Belgian UFO case happen later? This is like in 1980, I believe. Yeah, but didn't so, they ha- didn't they have like I think maybe they were only used what they had like it was the local air force base I don't they might have just had helicopters at the time hmm. or maybe the other planes were out doing whatever or maybe they thought like twenty three they thought well we got twenty three now you think at least where at least one of them is gonna you know catch up to it or something that that is that is an interesting point it, maybe they could have used fighter jets. But my whole thing is if the UFO wanted to evade them, it could have because I think it did. I don't think they caught whatever it was. It didn't. It doesn't appear that they caught it. Well, yeah, they didn't. But like it's like usually these UFOs just like blink out and then they are just gone. Maybe that's one particular type of maybe there's different types of UFOs. Oh, no, there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So so, so there might be one that, you know, that are more there might be more UFOs that are advanced than other ones. And then there's ones that aren't as advanced. All I know is. Uh, something that is propelled from the bottom uh, that can somehow fly um, in multi- multiple directions, um, you know, 
It's not a weather balloon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a weather balloon. I don't know if we have anything like that. I'm trying to think because a helicopter we could, but it's just we don't know anything about it. The public doesn't know anything about it. So right. That could, but the so. second thing I'm thinking about is like even if we did have anything like that, do you get radiation burns from yeah, it? See, that's the other thing because that that's the one that's the other thing that really really just sticks out to you when you see this segment. Because afterwards, they started to experience mysterious illnesses whose symptoms began to appear just six hours after this bizarre encounter. At 1 a.m., Colby woke up crying and asking for water. He had a high fever and was vomiting. His grandmother, Vicky, got sick right after tending to Colby. And both Vicky and Colby were dealing with the fever and what looked like severe sunburns. And Vicky was justifiably concerned about Betty because she was there with them. And uh, so she went to Betty's house to check on her health, and she was shocked by what she saw. Betty's temperature was dangerously high, and large red welts had appeared on her face and hands. And the makeup effects artists, they did a pretty good job here in this segment showing, you know, their sunburns and what Betty looked like. She looked like shit. Like She, she, was, yeah, she was pretty chilling to look at when they, first, yeah. when they first reveal her in the bed when she turns over. And Betty says she was so sick that all she needed was water. That's all she could think about. And her head was killing her and she had an upset stomach. And over a period of weeks, her condition worsened. So she went to a doctor and the doctor did some tests and records showed that she was dealing with symptoms of acute radiation poisoning. So she then went through treatment for acute radiation poisoning three weeks later. And she was in the hospital for about six weeks. During this period of time, she lost most of her hair. And even after the treatment, Betty was still dealing with the after effects of being exposed to high amounts of radiation, like extreme swelling of her face and arms, painful headaches, and a dramatic loss of appetite. Mickey and Colby had similar symptoms, but they were not as severe as Betty's were. You got to think, Betty was the one who got out of the car. Yeah. She she got out of the car and was standing in front of this thing, and therefore she got the the brunt of the radiation poisoning. Uh, yeah. Colby and uh, Vicky stayed in the car, so they had symptoms, but it wasn't nearly as bad as what Betty's were. This kind of does uh, tie into some of the, the the high amounts of radiation that are found at particular places where eyewitnesses say they saw a UFO. Or there's also been radiation found at crop circles and things like that. So this does kind of tie into sort of UFO sightings from people from the past and present. Because there has been documented cases of finding extremely high uh, amounts of radiation at these particular uh, spots where people have seen UFOs. So she contacted a UFO investigator named Josh Schussner for help. And he did several interviews with her and Vicky. They then revisited the location where they saw the object, and they were able to point out exactly what they saw and where they saw it. And if they were just making it up, I, I think that would be re- that'd be really hard to be that detailed. Right. So at it, this it, location, there was a burned spot on the road that indicated that it was heated due to extreme level of heating, and it was clearly visible. Yeah, and this spot on the road that they show, uh, now, I mean, I know that it, it's a, a recreation, but this spot they show is like jet black, you know. Yeah. And asphalt, you know, is designed to, you know, it, with withstand extreme levels of heat. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about... So it doesn't melt, yeah. Right, I'm thinking about the Florida sun. I live in Florida, and, and you know, goddamn, the roads have to heat up to at least 120 degrees at some points, yeah. and, and they're fine. Um, so, I mean, this... If you can imagine an asphalt road with just this jet black patch of uh, of burn area on it, you know, you're you're you're, te- you're th- now you're you know starting to realize the levels of heat that they were dealing with from this craft. And several weeks later, the burn spot was paved over. Eyewitnesses said that people brought in unmarked trucks, dug up the road, put the material in the trucks, then put a tarp over the trucks, and then drove away. I always thought that that's, that always stuck out to me watching this segment. They they literally dug up that one piece of asphalt, yeah, put it on an unmarked truck, hauled it away, put in a, a new piece of asphalt, and, and, and all that happened within se- only several weeks' time. Now, I don't know how things are wherever you live, but from where I live, if there's a pothole in our road, it takes like two months before they'll even look at it and poke it yeah. with a ruler. So, exactly. so to, to just, you know, swap out this one burn piece of road so quickly, you know, that's, that's something. That's very telling. That definitely shows that the military knew something was going on. That they'd they ha- wanted they'd to have to do because the, the city would be the one uh, commissioned to deal with it. And they'd have to go through all these other channels and, you know, they, they so they'd have to know about it. And obviously someone wanted that, that piece of road and. I mean, you could say at the very least, well, maybe it was giving off radiation, you know, maybe it's it was radioactive. Well, even then, that's something that that the government would be responsible for, you would think, on uh, on Vicky and Betty's end, you know, as far as they're concerned. Yeah, I understand. I understand why they're upset at the government later. But at the same time, there really isn't concrete proof that this craft is uh, from the government. So. So one of these, uh, so the, but there were other people who saw the, some of these things. Uh, the UFO investigator, John, he interviewed every individual that lived at least 10 miles from the area of the sighting. And at least 10 other people saw the object and seven saw the helicopters. One of the people who saw the helicopters was police officer L.L. L. Walker. He was in the area at the same time when Betty and Vicky saw the object. He also saw these helicopters. And one of the helicopters sideswiped near him and blasted him in the eyes with a bright searchlight. And he could tell that they were military helicopters. Now, uh, this this character, L.L. Walker, that they had on the show, this is just one of the classic Unsolved Mysteries uh, tropes, to use a word you said earlier, yeah. that, that we see in many Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, the, these are country folk. Yeah. Uh, so good old boys. <laughs> yeah. The, these are these are real motherfuckers. These are people that I'm not sure they would have on shows anymore because they might feel like, uh, oh, the young people aren't going to aren't going to want to hashtag this guy because he's not cool. They're not going to relate to him. But no, th- no more, well, that kind of makes sense. There's not a lot of blue collar characters in movies lately. It's a lot of young you know, fresh-faced individuals. But so one, one thing like, I love the most about this old fart that they had that they were interviewing this L.L. Walker guy, it wasn't helicopter, it was a helicopter. Like, <laughs> yeah. and, and, it, and he didn't have, like, a thick, like, Texas Southern accent. He, he was saying everything normal. He's like, and then me and my wife saw the helicopters come over the woods, and then the helicopters, yeah. and I'm just like, God, I love this guy, and I love this show. <laughs> I'm, so, of co- I'm so glad they put this guy on. Like, uh, that's just awesome. To talk about his helicopter. Yeah, his he- helicopter. 
So uh, Betty and Vicky then wrote to Texas senators about the ill effects that the sighting has had on them and Colby, and the Air Force base is notified. And on August 21st, Betty, Vicky, and Colby arrived at Bergstrom Air Force Base. Betty noticed a large map, and on the map, the exact spot where the incident had occurred was marked. They had brought overnight bags because they were expecting medical treatment. But instead, they were interrogated by these two military officers for at least two hours. These two officers then denied that any military operations were conducted on the night of the sighting. Now, there's a few things there. When they went to Bergstrom Air Force Base, they were pretty much convinced that they were going to get help. And that's the word they kept throwing around in the, in the segment. We want help. Yeah. Now, what do they mean by help? They want money. They want money to pay for their medical bills and all that, yeah. which is understandable because I'm sure mm -hmm. all those tests and radiation treatments aren't cheap. You could probably yeah. ask any cancer survivor or cancer patient about that. So they wanted help from the, from the government. They felt like they were responsible. Fair enough. I probably would have done the same thing. So these guys came to Bergstrom Air Force Base with overnight bags. Like, they thought they were going to get treatment, like, there. They thought they'd be spending the night. They thought, it, you know, it was all going to get taken care of. And I like how in the segment they do mention the map. Like, when they enter the room, there there's a big-ass map with a yeah. one little pin on the exact location where this event happened. Now, why would that map be in there? Why would that location be marked? Were the people just following up on the information and being like, oh, let's get a big-ass map and put a mark on it? Or... <laughs> would would it would that be more telling of something else like you know i don't know it's kind I, of I, that sounds like they had a discussion beforehand like they had people you know maybe there these officers were informed on what had happened what the, what it, what what's going on the location and everything by other superior officers and then they're basically telling them when these people come in you know you deny that anything happened or maybe there was just a really slow uh, guy who worked for the Air Force in there named Gomer or something. He's like, ah, what are you talking about? UFO? Yeah, the UFO, man. Oh, what? Where? where is it at? Pull out the giant <laughs> map. Pull out the giant map. Now, now, where was it again? Okay, we got to get the colored pins to put on the map so Gomer has a good visual representation. Here, is this good? Oh, now I get what you're talking about. <laughs> Uh, that could have been a possibility too. Just yeah, that, that could that could be a possibility. Oh, that sorry, sorry, we left the big map out with the pin for Gomer. He's a little slower. Uh, we needed to show him. Yeah, and he's only here because uh, the he's uh, the general's son or nephew. So yeah, he's yeah he's trust fund baby. <laughs> so the women were then told that they were entitled to file a claim and it would be investigated by the military. But four four weeks later, their claim for medical damages was denied. What a and in 1982, Betty and Vicky then filed a lawsuit against the United States government. The case was dismissed by a federal judge for lack of evidence, which is understandable. They don't really have any evidence. And then they're, they're, they seem like well-meaning people, but it seems like they're kind of naive. Like they were expecting everything was going to work out on their end and the government was going to hand them restitution or something, you know, and that the, they were like, oh, it was in front of a federal judge. And, you know, that just convinced me that the government just is, is no good or stuff like that, you know. You know, these people, these people kind of hit me close to home because, you know, I, I, 
I'm a Southern boy. I grew up in the South my whole life. My daddy's Southern. These people remind me of my grandma and my aunt or something like that. Yeah. They, they, you know, they're talking about how the judge didn't even give us a chance to present our sides of the story and what we had seen and all this other kind of stuff. And, you know, and just typical, uh, you know, uh, disenfranchisement with the government. You know, like, I've lost all trust in the U.S. government. The amount of people I know around here who, who have all said that is just, like, just so typical, like, if I don't you know. Had a, if you had a dollar or a dime for every time someone around your neighborhood said that kind of stuff, you'd probably be rich. Just the amount of times my dad has said it. I mean, for good lord i mean the the uh the southerners down here in the uh the bible belt we don't trust the government so what so exactly what did they see in the texas sky an experimental governmental craft a ufo well the people who did see this texas ufo they don't believe in little green men so they believe that it's a governmental craft and that was their words by the way they said yeah. they don't believe in they called them little green men yeah, it was Vicky who was like, she says, I don't believe in little green man. <laughs> Which I bet they don't. I'm, I, you know, again, it was just like the uh, w the case that we talked about, uh, what was it, last week, where um, these people had nothing to gain from this. Yeah. They, no. they, In fact, they gained something, and they gained uh, hefty medical bills and early death. Radiation probably. poisoning. Yeah. yeah. So they, you know, they actually have... They're still alive. I haven't done any research. Oh, I highly doubt. They, yeah, I highly doubt it. They were yeah. old. They were old we, even in during that segment. I mean, um, and and Betty had. I think they were saying uh, Betty had several. She types was diagnosed with several types of cancer. Yeah, several, <laughs> not just one. Several. Yeah, several. That's uh, you're kind of fucked when that happens. Uh, and they all had lower than normal white blood cell counts, which which is which is reminiscent of like a. Uh, immune, uh, yeah, immune, yeah. yeah, immune deficiency disease like AIDS. Yeah, exactly. And their bodies couldn't fight off even the simplest colds or minor infection. And that, yeah, yeah, Colby's probably the one that's going to have the, the most problems, you know, growing up. If he even makes it, even if he lives to be that long. Yeah, if he, yeah, if he did make it, I don't know. Like, uh, I've tried to Facebook a lot of these people, a lot of the younger people on the Unsolved Mysteries, but I'm guessing they don't really give out their last names because I've never found anybody. Like, uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but going into the Ghost Boy segment, I tried to Facebook that that person and see if I could find him or any information on him because, yeah. man, what's going on? But yeah, it's uh, probably they're probably like, we don't want to be contacted by you. Uh, crazy and solve mystery fans <laughs> yeah because i'm sure i'm not the first person that's tried that like i don't know i just get curious about that stuff and i i just like to be like hey bro i just saw your unsolved mystery segment so what's going on are you still seeing ghosts like <laughs> you're like the fanboy yeah know, like the, from uh from freakazoid but for unsolved mysteries <laughs> i don't but, yeah i don't understand the reference but i'm gonna go with it i mean i know the show but i don't i don't or or, or the comic book guy from simpsons there you go yeah i got that one <laughs> so yeah i so, mean obviously of course of course they refused to be interviewed for this segment and they continued to deny that there was any military operations that occurred on that cold texas winter night let's have a let's have a moment for uh the all the people out there going big surprise the government <laughs> didn't want to comment yeah i i i think it was a ufo that's my my belief. I think it was a UFO. 
Um, it could be a governmental craft. If it was, it wasn't from the U.S. government. It, ha it, it, it from Russia or some other country, because the U.S. government would not be sending 23 helicopters from their own government to chase after some object that was built and was flown out of one of their own hangars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these people had physical symptoms. You can't deny that. Exactly. You know, I mean, this is, this is unfortunate that it happened to them, but it's kind of one of those things to where it's like, this is one of the better, you know, as far as physical proof, you know, UFO researchers and and people who are trying to give credence to the UFO phenomenon, you kind of like to see when there's things like physical, you know, manifestations of, of, of things that have happened as a result. This of isn't the only only instance either. There's another one on the UFO set, box set. Where oh, yeah, guy Falcon Lake, the Falcon Lake yeah. UFO. Yeah. yeah. That's also a really good one to talk about where the the, he, the guy got burns in the shape of the grate that was on the UFO. And these, yeah. that's that's going into a whole nother thing. I mean, Jesus, all the segments that we could talk about here. But uh, yeah, I mean, like I'm saying, I'm like going through my head thinking, like, what do we have as far as a flying machine that would give you radiation poisoning? Now, I'm thinking if you stood too close to a NASA rocket blasting off well first of all all you die of a heart attack <laughs> from the uh sonic you know just the sonic yeah. frequencies but i mean let's say there was something that was low energy enough to where it used like some kind of a propulsion system coming out the bottom of it you know because traditional flight if you want to go side to side left and right up and down you have to use a more helicopter type propulsion uh jets can only really go forward uh as far as you know in turn so that so i'm thinking like what flying kind of mechanism do we even have that that propels itself with that kind of method and and you know obviously if this is a a device that the government does own if it's shooting radiation out everywhere as it flies that's that wouldn't be sanctioned no absolutely not and they definitely would not want people to know about it and of course they would deny that this is of government origin. But the thing is, it's the 23 helicopters. I keep going back to the 23 helicopters, which really makes me feel I don't think this is a U.S. government object or, or, or uh, flying machine, because I don't see any reason why they would send 23 helicopters after it, unless it has a mind of its own. Yeah, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, do you, you, I hate that we keep, we keep coming back to this, but it's like you just don't know. I mean, you, you no, you don't. You just have no idea. It's totally unexplained. Uh, but the radiation poisoning was a real thing that these these people had to deal with, and I definitely do feel so bad, and I feel so much for them uh, that they had to deal with that. I mean, it's scary enough to see something like this let alone deal with severe radiation poisoning. Yeah, you know, the whole UFO craft thing has always been uh, fascinating to me because there there are just so many different crafts from all the stories that we hear. But if I'm going to see one, you know, I mean, it'd be kind of cool to see one, but I don't want to see one if it's going to give me radiation poisoning. 
Well, they all have some form, it seems, they all have some form of something that our human bodies don't like. Yeah. Because anytime anyone's ever tried to fuck around with one, it, it always ends badly. So, obviously, the kind of propulsion systems they have are just something that human beings aren't designed to be able to handle. Yeah. I Which mean, makes sense. if you can't even if you can't even get in the vicinity of the thing without getting these horrible, you know, radiation type, you know, sim like poisoning. Symptoms. Yeah. I mean, like that's that's just that's crazy. You know, I mean, that's obvious. I mean, just the the legal red tape and the litigation from if the government did have something like this, you know, we don't even the, the U.S. government doesn't even allow like the smallest kind of. Uh, I mean, you know, you always hear with the rice, they allow a certain amount of rat feces in it, you know, per whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's certain things that, you know, but but there's also, you know, with the FDA and uh, all this other kind of stuff. There's so much regulations to, to so many things. And it's for the sake of public safety. And it's for the sake of they want to avoid, you know, the courts because people will sue. And if this was a government craft and it was shooting out radiation I mean, you saw what happened with Chernobyl and uh, and yeah. five mile or three mile island and uh, uh, NLO. Uh, you know, like these these factories. You know, when they release radioactivity, it's all up in the papers and it gets all this negative publicity. So, you know, they don't want this craft running around that's like radioactive and giving people cancer. That would be a legal nightmare for them. So, of course, I don't think it's one of ours. Um, the question would, uh, the only other question, if we're talking about being an earthly craft is if it's somebody else's, you know, now yeah. that's, that, that's a question don't know. that could be asked, you know, it could be some kind of, uh, like I was saying, Russian, Russian, Chinese, some kind of yeah. something that, you know, maybe they have a UFO crash over there somewhere and then they, they, uh, incorporated some alien technology into some craft and then flew it over but texas really someplace in like the middle of nowhere texas that's the other thing it's like it was like on some road somewhere some country road in texas in houston well who knows like, what where kind of spying are they going to define there who knows where it was coming from and who knows where it was going you know I mean, yeah there's that obviously the count obviously when they intercepted it that was just it was passing through you know that's what they call it the unknown and the unexplained the next one, uh, this one terrified me the first time I saw it. And I had never seen this live. The first time I saw the segment, the Ghost Boy segment, was on the Ghost set. And I had never heard of it until then. And I was like, the first time, I remember the first time I saw this quite vividly. And I, I didn't see it when I was like a kid or anything. I saw it when I was like an adult. And it scared the shit out of me as an adult. Yeah, same it's here. Just, it's just the whole, uh, the whole Ghost Boy concept the whole thing that what he's dealing with is just terrifying to me the idea that this door to the paranormal is always open when you're around and you're alive and you're still breathing is just terrifying it's kind of like constantine you know the movie constantine and, and the comic and the tv show where he kind of has the door open but like this is like really bad so yeah this is the jones family who they had no warning of these ghostly incidents that they claim had occurred. And uh, Denise, there's the mother, Denise Jones. There's also the stepfather. I forgot his name, but uh, it's her son, Michael, 
who is dealing with all of these supernatural occurrences, these terrifying, horrifying uh, supernatural occurrences. Uh, she says, uh, introduces with her saying that she heard her son scream and then she saw him curled up in his bed. And Michael says that he saw an old man. He said he was white, cloudy, and he smiled at him. And Michael says that it was a ghost. He even says that the ghost said that he was a ghost as well, which is kind of, I don't know, like, really? Like, would a ghost really be like, yeah, and by the way, I am a ghost. <laughs> yeah, the, the ghost, you know, like, I'm sure the ghost would be more like, ugh, ghost? That is such an archaic term, and we find it offensive. We are living impaired. <laughs> Uh, so he was only five years old when he saw his first ghost. And Michael says he has continued to see ghosts ever since. Uh, he then saw this man again in the kitchen. And he then later saw a picture of the old man that he'd been seeing as a ghost. And that man was his great-grandfather. He had never met him before, never heard of him, never seen this picture before. And this is his great grandfather been dead for 17 years, which we have seen this, uh, the examples of this in many cases before, especially kids seem to be more attuned to, to this yeah. kind of energy than adults. Um, there's many other cases where, uh, you know, there is a point where the family just happens to be going through a, a family photo album and there'll be a great, great grandfather in there. And the kid will point to it and go, that's the man I've been seeing. And it's like, well, that man's been dead for like, you know, 50 years. That's yeah. not possible. That's always stuff that makes your hair stand up because you're like, how? And I would think it would be the reaction too of the kid. Like, Oh my God, that's him. It's like, that's something that yeah. you can't really fake. I mean, you can no. fake it, but you got to really be going for attention, you know, attention whore, you know, if you're uh, going out of your way to, to just pick a random person and be like, Oh, that's, that's the man I've been seeing, you know? Like, kids usually aren't clever enough to... They're not that good of actors, either. Yeah, so. to devise something, you know, like... So, if this wasn't creepy enough for Michael, uh, his grandfather uh, says that he believes evil spirits are in his house. And he says that they want him on his side, and that there, there are a lot of ghosts in this house that are after him. There are a lot of good ones and bad ones, and they're both fighting over Michael. That, like, really... First time I heard that, that just, like, made just send a chill right down my spine because just the idea that there's this eternal, there's this struggle like, Oh, by the way, there's all different types of ghosts. There's good ghosts, but there's also really bad ones and they're both fighting over you, by the way. It's like the movie ghost where, yeah. uh, you know, what's his face dies and becomes the guard, the protection, the protecting ghost. But then you got all these other scary shadowy ones. Yeah. So Michael's parents believed that the spirits were multiplying. So they contacted a paranormal investigator and researched a case named John Zappis. Now, Zappis is a 26-year vet of uh, paranormal investigating. He did not find anything physically or mentally wrong with Michael or his family. They, Michael was submitted to numerous psychological and medical evaluations, and the physicians found nothing medically wrong with Michael. Uh, psychological evaluations provided the same results. So I know a lot of people usually point out stuff like this when these cases happen. Oh, they're crazy, or there's this, or they're whatever. Well, they did all these tests, and they didn't find anything. So you can't really say that that is what it was. Which is honestly, I mean, that that's honestly like textbook uh, paranormal ghost hunting 
yeah. uh, 101, you, you always rule out the uh, the variables, you know, like you rule out the, you know, I mean, I remember most on- of the cases they probably investigate are normal causes like, oh, there's the reason why you're hearing this banging is because you have some pipes in the attic that need to be worked on. I remember this one segment uh, off Unsolved Mysteries off the box set, and it's it was about a house that these three ranchers bought in the middle of the this. Uh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah, and like when you slept in one of the in the rooms, you heard just this banging and thrashing around, and when they would get up, everything was untouched. It was fine, and like they even invited their sisters out there, and 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 they had the same experience, and all these weird psychological effects were happening to to them, and noises and everything, and then finally they got some specialists out there, and they determined that. Get this shit. They determined there was some lime rock under the house and yeah. and like water was seeping through and it and it made some kind of a, a psychosomatic effect. It had some kind of effect on the brain to cause these kind of hallucinatory things. I don't know. That, that's what they was. That's what they were say, saying. So, I mean, if you want to get that detailed into science, I mean, there are a lot of times uh causes for certain things but in ghost boy what ends up happening is pretty uh out of this world yeah he michael ends up uh he's drawing these terrifying hand-drawn pictures of what he believes to be the most dangerous and aggressive ghost that he's seen in the house and this is the shadow man and those pictures are definitely pretty uh eerie as well and he even says that sometimes there's more than one shadow man that terrifies him and his family this is kind of stuff that uh, people with sleep paralysis see as well as these kind of shadow people. So, but it doesn't seem like it's sleep paralysis because his his family also sees these things. It's not just Michael who's seeing these things. Uh, and apparently, Michael had 26 different heart attacks when he was born, which is quite unusual. And uh, somehow he managed to survive despite these cardiac arrests. And Zappas believes that since birth, Michael has had the ability to communicate with spirits because this door to the other side has been open ever since he was born because of all of these different near-death experiences that he's had when he was a baby because he had 26 different heart attacks. That actually, that's kind of plausible if you ask me. Hey, hold on a second, Mike. I think there's some... Something in here. Really? Like a roach or something. Hold on. All right. <laughs> I thought you were saying like there's. A, I thought you were saying like there's a, a, a shadow man in there. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I kept hearing like a like like little like little legs or something. You know, like the sound. Oh of God. Roach, like the sound of a roach. You know, like the little like scraping sound on my wall. I swear, I'm not trying to be like. <laughs> I'm not trying to be apropos right now or anything. <laughs> it's much more likely it's a roach. Trust me, they're very common in my house. Um, but yeah, I just don't like those fuckers in my room because I mean, yeah. who, who would like that? You know, you know, fucking cockroach. But yeah, you scared me there. Like I was like, there's something in here. Oh no, I I thought I thought I saw a shadow. I'm not again. I'm not. I thought I saw a little shadowy thing over by my clothes hamper, and I did. I, I it was. I didn't know if it was either a rat or a roach. I hope it's a fucking roach and not a rat. 
Uh, but anyway, so yeah, he had these, when he was a kid, he had these 26 different heart attacks. And Zaphis believes that these were, these led to near-death experiences that opened this door uh, to the other side, to the paranormal. And I, I was saying earlier, I thought that was pretty plausible, considering he had all these different near-death experiences, one after another. So maybe there was some door that was left open because he had so many different heart attacks. Yeah, it's like a, you know, near-death experience and you gain, like, yeah, he was basically saying that because he came so close to death, a door was open for him to have yeah. that kind of paranormal sensitivity, a, a la The Sixth Sense, but it was more... I see dead people. It, more like I see shadow people. Yeah, it was more of an auditory... Well, not really. It was actually... he. Yeah, there was a visual component to the ghost boy thing, yeah. too. But, I mean, he didn't see actual, like, walking corpses or anything. It wasn't that no. dramatic. But, uh, no, I mean, it was kind of like he has this... Almost like this sixth sense mm. that nobody would be envious of. Um, no. But, so, Zappas, he says he also believes the spirits are attracted to Michael because of the open door to the paranormal that Michael himself represents... And he fears that he could be possessed by one of these spirits since he's going through what he calls the second stage of possession, oppression. And then one night, Michael's parents hear a loud noise. It was like a loud thumping. Then they heard Michael scream. His parents then came into his bedroom and saw his bed shaking up and down. And Michael says he felt his bed rise about three inches. And then that makes my hair rise up about three inches. <laughs> Like that particular, when I, yeah, when I first saw that, that was the moment where I was like, oh, whoa, shit, like things are getting like exorcist crazy, <laughs> beds jumping up and down. As a viewer, that's the point where you're either, where, where you're at a crossroads and you have to go either one of two ways. You have to either totally, um, you have to totally call bullshit on it and be like, all right, now I know it's bullshit. Or that's when you get really, really scared and be like, holy shit, that like, they actually saw this. This actually happened. You're, yeah. You're going to be one of two camps at that point. Because well, everything... I think there was multiple witnesses. There was the younger brother, the other brother or nephew or something was there with them. Um, the mother, the the father. I mean, they could have done this for like financial. I mean, there is a book about this case. So maybe, but I don't know. I doubt it. You know, it's funny. Like there's so many people out there that like, they're not going to believe this no matter what they say on the show, because some people out there, they just have to see it. And until well, I know there's certain people out there who think that there is some logical explanation for it, a scientific explanation for it. It's just we don't know what that scientific explanation is yet. Well, they're, they're not going to see it and they're not going to believe it until they see it. And for me, I'm the exact opposite. I believe it and I don't want to see it. <laughs> I don't want to see it either. I really don't. Especially not this. Um yeah, this was, uh, yeah, Denise Jones, she wrote a book called The Other Side, The True Story of the Boy Who Sees Ghosts. So, there is a book about this particular case. Wait, Denise, the mom, wrote it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, I know, that, yeah. That does See, that work. seems kind of... So, this... Who knows? It still is a good segment, though. Well, one of the, one of the biggest parts about this that that got to me was um she also saw she she his mother says she saw the shadow man in her peripheral vision who walked across a wall 
And the way that the Shadow Man looked like, it reminded me exactly of this uh, 80s Twilight Zone episode, the segment. It was called The Shadow Man. And it literally had the same sort of Shadow Man that showed up. And they said, you know, it lived under people's beds. Do you think, and, do you think uh, the uh, do you think the like the uh, P, the set designers at all? Do you think they were paying homage to the Twilight maybe, Zone? Maybe I don't know, but it was it was the exact same Shadow Man with the with the trench coat and the hat and everything. So uh, that what it really started to escalate and go into like really scary territory because evil spirits started to physically attack Michael. They left scratches on his body and bite marks. And uh, the family moved to another house, but that didn't stop any of this. And when Michael was just sitting with his family on the couch, a large scratch appeared on his arm right in front of his family. Yeah, that was probably the scariest part to me. Like, and, and if you notice, like, it's always like claw type wounds yeah. with these things, because there's, there's a bunch of other segments um, that that come to mind. And it's always like and that's what makes it even scarier. It's like it's like some kind of a demonic beast or something. It's yeah, like a, it's always it's always claws or, or a claw like slash. Scratches. Yeah. And in uh, another paranormal show sightings in the Heartland Ghost case, they there was a they were experiencing a lot of uh, physical uh, scratches and stuff like that. In fact, they actually got one of the scratches on tape. Now you could probably say it could be faked, but they sent the tapes in to people who test to see if things are faked and they couldn't really find any evidence of fakery. So yeah, that was a pretty crazy case. And there was this, uh, there was this ghost called Sally or something that just kept like tormenting this one guy, just scratching him and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that reminds, so, that reminds me of the Rain Boy segment too. There's yeah. the scene where he got scratched, and it was it was like three claw marks on either side of his neck. Yeah, you know, it's like a con yeah. So Denise decided to bring in an exorcist to exorcise any spirits that were attached to Michael. Michael says he saw the shadow man in the back of the church while this was going on, and uh, he also experienced a burning sensation in his stomach that was eased with a drink with a drink of holy holy water. Now it could just be. You needed something to drink or something, or maybe just any water could have helped ease it. But holy water makes it seem like, okay, there might be something like that here. And uh, I don't, I can't really say I've seen anything for sure, but I do remember, like, because we lived at this place that kind of run down. I lived with my dad and my stepmom in Oklahoma City. It's kind of run down house next to a church. And while my step, my, uh, a stepbrother, not really my stepbrother, he's my uncle, step-uncle, kind of. His name is Tony. He has a lot of uh, mental issues. He was going a lot of through a lot of stuff at that time. And I remember, like, just the house just didn't feel right when he was there. And I, I specifically remember one night where I was just sleeping. I was having a hard time sleeping. And, like, I... I I felt like there was something behind me and I remember just waking up like, like a jolt, you know, and then looking around and I swore I saw something behind the couch that I was sleeping on the same sort of like dark sort of shadowy sort of thing. And yeah, it was it definitely say it was hard to sleep uh, for the rest of that night. Now that does kind of tie into sleep paralysis stuff, but I didn't really feel like the typical sleep paralysis symptoms. 
I, I didn't feel that kind of that type of, you know, you can't move and so on. I, I literally remember actually being able to physically get up and then see something in the corner of my eye. So it could just be my mind playing tricks on me, but there was a lot of crazy shit going on in that, in that location at the time. And I do believe in, in something called negative energy. So I, I, I do believe that there was a lot of that going on in the, in the house at that point in time. Luckily, nothing got really bad. But even my dad and my stepmom said they saw some stuff, too. So it wasn't like I was totally alone there. Well, my, Once yeah. he was gone, then the stuff kind of... We even actually had some uh, uh, pastor come in and bless the house, and some things, you know, things got a little bit better. And uh, when he left, things definitely got better as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, my friend who has, uh, who has schizophrenia, but she has it under control... Um... She was she can recall all of her hallucinations and stuff perfectly. And she was telling me about how she would see auras around people and like certain people would have like, you know, very like certain auras and all that. And I believe the mind of a schizophrenic uh, is part, you know, insane, but it's also part uh, extra percept, uh, you know, extra extra sensory, extra sensory perception. Yeah. Like I, I, I truly yeah. feel like uh they have they they've accessed that part of their brain now they don't have any control over it and that's the problem yeah. but they they have you know access to it nonetheless and you know she would actually see shadow people uh sometimes like um uh, you know the kind of the stories i could i could do a whole segment on the shit that she's told me about but yeah i mean so uh, you know, there's, there's, there's more than what we see with the naked eye. I mean, if that, if that weren't true, then, you know, you couldn't account for things like ultraviolet rays and radio frequencies mm -hmm. there right now, all around us, there's, there's all kinds of sonic frequencies from radio stations all around. We just can't see them. So, I mean, the, you know, the fact that there could be energies, you know, from these things that we call ghosts is really not that far fetched. If you think about it, I mean, yeah. It doesn't. It it doesn't even necessarily have to be uh, some kind of a spiritual manifestation of someone who used to be living. It could be anything. It could just be a force. Of some yeah, it kind. could be just a negative entity. Yeah. So three weeks later, the disturbances continued for the, for the Jones family, and since the first exorcism, Michael has undergone has undergone four exorcisms over the past few years. His family has moved eight times. And these things have provided some relief, but it is normally temporary. And Michael and his family are still deal dealing with these blood-curdling events straight out of our worst nightmares. And that's that's what really pisses me off because it's like, damn it, man! Like, what ended up happening to this kid? Like, I, yeah. Like, I, it, if I wanted to follow up on any case more than any of the other ones, it would. This be was this one of the newer cases too. I think this is one of the last. Thing, one of the might have been one of the last few cases that was covered on Unsolved Mysteries because it does it looks like a newer uh, one like maybe from like the late 90s or definitely or maybe I think it's the 2000s I think or you know something like that you could tell because Robert Stack definitely did sound older and with the narration here yeah so I mean the kid so if that's the case then the kid's you know maybe in his twenties now if he's still alive, hopefully he is you know um yeah, the book came out in October of two thousand, so it probably came out around the same time as huh. the second. 
Yeah, I wonder if, if we could find the book, if there'd be some way to get, you know, if we could somehow, you know, I wonder if they have a website or if there's some way, you know, to. It's on Amazon and all, all the reviews are bad. Like everyone's saying, like, it's terrible. It's not well written. Just rips off the sixth sense and so on. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's that's fascinating. I'm kind of still curious about the book, you know, because it's interesting that there is a book. But, you know, that it is written by the mother is kind of, you know, seem kind of cash grabby. But how much money are you going to get for something like this anyway? I mean, this isn't like back in the 70s where you had the end of a horror when you get a bestseller for this kind of stuff. You'd be lucky to make a little bit of a profit. Well, uh, the thing that that's kind of disturbing to me about it is the fact that she's talking about how as a mother, I want to protect my son and it hurts me so bad to see him in all this pain. Yet she's going to exploit his pain for profit. Yeah. Write a damn book. Yeah, that is a problem. That it's like, a... that's gross. You know, like that is... what the fuck? It must not be hurting you that bad to put all the man hours into, you know, writing a damn book and try, you know, it's 320 pages long. Yeah. And then she, the people are talking about, this one guy's talking about how could anyone believe this stuff? He's talking about the book. He's like, I haven't read a couple books by Ed and Lorraine Warren. I was researching for someone's story. wasn't lying and trying to make a buck. Even one of Warren's ghostwriters wrote an expose of how he lied his butt off while writing one of their books. So I started this book initially thinking, however badly written, these people have a true story about tell about experiencing demons. Wrong. After having to skip pages of boring details of how entities in Mrs. Jones's home are throwing her mother-in-law around, torturing her kids, and after the 1,000th episode, her and her husband were still hesitant to contact anyone for help. I managed to make it to the end of the book. Here's where the mundane details became, yeah, give me a break type details. For instance, a large black car goes around mowing down several friends and family members, and then at the end of the book, this is actually kind of ridiculous, appears at her son's friend's grave and tries to mow the opera and her son down. Oh my god. Like it's the hearse. <laughs> Then some sort of heavenly family members, then some sort of heavenly light explosion occurs and the car veering towards them at 1,000 miles an hour explodes into the universe. Okay. Is now is, is, this book, book. is this book billed as fiction or nonfiction? I think it's kind of billed as nonfiction. So at the end of the book, she holds a seance for her and her son. At the seance, she sort of casually mentions she encounters the ghost of her grandfather and her son's dead friend. Another victim of the demon car. None of this stuff was mentioned in Unsolved Mystery segment, by the way, folks. And she has an extremely lengthy conversation with both of them. They tell her her son is like, likely a conduit for Satan and God and got the impression the whole fate of the universe rests on this battle within her son. Oh, my God. And uh, one more thing. After having all these demon cars and angels and things flying around the house, beds floating around and on and on, there's not one single piece of evidence in existence that shows any of this. Okay, you know what? Now it just got ruined for me because this 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 makes me feel like it's 120% bullshit because A, yeah. I, okay, I was, before you told me all this stuff about a book in the mom writing it, I was thinking, okay, these are just nice people who are having a horrible thing happen to them and, you know, Unsolved Mysteries felt it was a good story so, and, and there was a professional of uh, this kind of shit involved yeah. so maybe, maybe it gave it more credence. But you know what? The bottom line is there's not a single shred of proof that any of this shit happened. It's totally going off of, of what the mom is saying even in the segment uh -huh. it's going off yeah. of, of, uh, of anecdotal evidence and that's literally all they have and now the mom's writing a book about it 
to you know that she could potentially make a lot of money off of and how do you promote books you make appearances on tv you know i mean uh-huh. whether the book came first or after is inconsequential i mean the fact that she was on tv if she wrote the book after she was on tv she could say from the mother of the show unsolved mysteries or from the you know segment on the popular show lifetime show unsolved mysteries you know Uh comes this book and it's like and and now you're saying all this stuff about this car mowing people over it's like dude fuck (laughs) off this is obviously a, a bunk case that she's just the moms. They're just trying to make money and make a name for themselves. Because you know what? The more that I she think saw of, the eighties Twilight Zone segment, the Shadow Man. Well, the more that I think about that. it, the more it sounds like bullshit to me. Because it's like you know what? If this kid was really tormented, if his bed was shaking and shit, why didn't they ever get any of it on video? Why didn't they ever? Why would the kid? But the thing is, too, why would the kid? draw these drawings unless maybe he didn't draw them maybe his mom did but they're saying like he drew these drawings under like psychiatric evaluations and stuff like this so he could be coached to do that kind of thing yeah he could totally be coached why would it be that specific though i mean that's the thing it's it it, maybe it did happen but she like went way overboard with her book trying to get some bestseller but at the same time, but it again, could also again, I got to go back to the whole mother's pain, and, and yeah. it hurts me to see my son suffer. Yet you're gonna go and and write a book Resurrection about Resurrection Mary. There's people aren't writing books about Resurrection Mary. You know, they're just talking about what they saw. Uh, with the Tallman House ghost, it doesn't seem like I don't think they wrote a book about it either. So yeah, I I didn't know much about this book until I I, I just did some research, you know, in, pre- in preparation for this talking about this segment. It's still a memorable segment and it's still creepy, but it might as well it's just as probably just as plausible as a creepy pasta on the internet. It, it just because if you the book does really does raise a lot of suspicions, especially with the fucking de- demon car running over people and shit. I mean, shit. At that point, you might you might as well be like, you know, and and there was like, and Ghost Rider was driving the the demon car, and and then and then you had like the battle over. Then Spider Man came out of nowhere and and stopped, the you know, god and devil, the god and the, the god and, and the devil are fighting over our son. The battle, the fate of the universe. Rests. Fate of the universe. Hmm. Fate of the universe depends on this one little shit from. Uh, wherever the fuck USA. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh it's still now- fun to talk about this segment. Oh yeah, I- no. I mean, you know, this is this is the first uh of this uh, uncovering unsolved mysteries where I've where I've been this some new information has been sprung on me and I've completely changed my opinion like on yeah. uh, like live as we're recording. Like I did not know any of that shit. That changes everything to me. Yeah. I mean, there's no witnesses. I mean, the, the husband says he saw stuff, too. But, you know, he could just be in on they, it. They could all be in on it. There's so much stuff missing from this one that was present in in the other ones that, you yeah. know, like the Texas UFO, you have separate witnesses. You have actual physical, you know, yeah. that were reported by doctors. You know, these people are, are, are dying, essentially. I mean, there's so many things that are not present here. Or even Rain Boy, you know, that that's definitely more plausible. Oh, yeah, you had police. Yeah, you had police officers who were, you know, basically. <laughs> and when you see these interviews from these police officers, you, you, you're like, yeah, they saw something they, that they couldn't explain. Yeah. But this is this is literally like this is all anecdotal evidence from this one family. Yeah. And the the 
the psychiatrist or whoever the professional well, there's the parapsychologist guy too but... but but he literally said nothing was wrong <laughs> no he didn't it didn't seem like he said like oh the ghost cd thought that there was some demon he thought he thought there was a possibility of demonic possession that's as close as it got it seemed like with that guy but um it doesn't seem like he himself saw any of these things like uh, the people who investigated the entity case and actually saw lights and stuff like that. And when the woman who was saying she was experiencing the supernatural, you know, disturbances, like the spirit, like raping her and, and abusing her and so on, she basically said she's had enough of this light show, show yourself. And a lot of the actual people, witnesses, they said they saw like arms and legs materializing out of thin air. And these are multiple different witnesses, and and uh, you could probably say, oh, mass hypnosis, or be like that asshole psychiatrist from uh, Poltergeist Three, who's all like, it was a mass hypnosis. She's just making everyone hallucinate that these things happen. You know, Carol Ann from Poltergeist. But that's just pretty. That's that's stretching things. That there'd be that many people who would go along with this at the mass hypnosis. Now this. And they have photograph. They have photograph. They have evidence because there's actual photographs that have been studied and by actual phot photography experts, and they can't seem to find anything wrong with them in terms of whether or not they're faked. This, yeah, it's anecdotal evidence. Could be an might as well just be an urban legend. Which honestly, the more that I think about it, for unsolved mysteries, seems a little uh, bizarre. Because usually they have more to go on. I mean, really, all they had is this Zaphis guy. You know, I mean, that's yeah. the only thing that kind of lended any kind of credibility for. That's why this seems like it was uh, near the end of the show's run, like in the 2000s era. Um, and it does kind of feel it doesn't have the same feel as no. the other ones do. No, it doesn't. But it was still memorable for me when I first saw it. I just didn't know anything about this book. I, I, I remember hearing something about a book, but I didn't know anything about what was in the book until I did some more research. And yeah, folks, it does sound like, you know, the ghost boy, you know, it's got a bunch of ghost BS. As soon uh, you know, as people start grabbing for money that or, or as soon as they start exploiting things that happen, that as soon as money gets involved with anything, it poisons it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I mean, at that point, there's so much. I mean, I remember there was an Unsolved Mysteries segment uh, where these two K-Rock DJs had this segment yeah. called... Yeah, called, that one. Yeah, they said, you know, they talked about a, a little little bonus fourth segment here I'm going to talk about this week, but uh, they, they these K-Rock DJs in the 90s had people call in, confess their crimes, and they would be small things, like I cheated on my girlfriend or whatever. And this one yeah. guy called in, and he was very timid, and he's like, he basically admitted on air, uh, reluctantly, that he got very upset at his girl when he walked in on her sleeping with some other guy, and he... Uh, he, he said he shot shot her. Not he didn't actually go out and say he shot her. He said I got pretty mad and, uh, yeah, and I killed her. Yeah. I, I I don't know if she made it. And he's and they're yeah. like, sir, are you saying that you killed this woman? Stay on the line so we can get you some help. And he's like, no, I think I should be going. And he hangs up the phone. And they have these DJs on Unsolved Mysteries, and they're you know as and they're trying to you know be like, hey, is this bullshit? Are you just making this up? Is this just a ploy to get ratings? And they interview the guy and they're like, you know, there's certain lines you don't cross as a DJ and, yeah. and, and making up something like this 
is just a line you don't cross, making up someone's because, murder. you know, and, and they also tried to connect uh, to a, another murder that was unsolved. And so you had the whole, you know, the family members are having hope now that, you know, finally they can lay their, their family member to rest. And, yeah, you find out that it was a radio uh, publicity stunt. Yeah, they were totally BSing. They even went on Unsolved Mysteries and lied and fabricated their story. And, you know, Unsolved Mysteries being a transparent TV show, they even did an update and said, yeah, it turns out that the story was made up and the DJs were suspended. But eventually they not the they, uh, you know, they, they didn't press, you know, the law enforcement didn't press charges. And they I think they even got to keep their jobs. Yeah, they got to keep their jobs. They were back on air like what, like few weeks it's a couple weeks after they got suspended yeah and when you yeah. watch the segment you're like yeah these guys are telling the truth this this guy called and called in a murder and you know yeah. our good nature takes precedent usually and, and at least mine does and i'm like you know hey these guys are telling the truth this is shitty you know and that you want to believe them yeah, yeah. you want to believe that they're telling the truth and no they're full of shit just trying to get ratings this mom the other one there's another one that's similar where this guy he's he made a phone call right and he make phone calls to like the press or to 911 or something and he admitted that he did this crime or something like that and there was this woman that had, had died in a, a shopping mall she got murdered and it was found like in a storage closet somewhere yeah that that was that was pretty crazy i don't think i've seen that one yet yeah that's that's on season 3 as well i believe the season 3 segments so that one's that one kind of ties into the whole thing where there's like video tape, audio tape, but they actually played some of the actual audio tape. So that is proof that okay, this really wasn't technically staged, but uh, but then it kind of it might be too. You don't know. So but our, it does our, seem... our whole point is people can BS and they can even go on unsolved mysteries and BS. And yeah. the, now I know that there was a book for sale. And like I said, even if she wrote the book after the fact that she was on the show, doesn't make her any less of a bullshitter in my eyes because she can still use the fact that she was on Unsolved Mysteries to move books because she can yeah. say, as seen on the popular show Unsolved Mysteries, you know, the new book about Ghost Boy. And she brought what, what's the name of the book, by the way? The book is called uh, The Everside, The True Story of the Boy Who Sees Ghosts. Oh, I'm surprised the book wasn't just called Ghost Boy or something like in big bold letters. <laughs> the publisher even has this on the back. He says, from the publisher's weekly, this is uh, the Michael's neighbors repeated again in a string of words that ran together that roughly read, Michael, we're coming to get you. You know why. And then the number three in a roughly drawn eye with red drops dripping from it describes what terrified Jones on the day saw on the day that she realized all the paranormal events that occurred to up to, to now were part of a diabolical plan to harm her 10-year-old boy. Objects had been flying around rooms. Mysterious waltz appeared on Michael's body. Her mother-in-law was mysteriously thrown down from the basement stairs, which none of that was mentioned. Mother, well, the mother-in-law wasn't even mentioned in this segment, I don't think. Jones, her husband, and three children are ordinary Americans, practicing Catholics who keep to themselves and not too terribly sophisticated despite Jones's clumsy writing. So that's just somebody talking about the, the book. And uh, the publisher himself says, this is a searing, suspenseful story of the supernatural in the tradition of the sixth sense and poltergeist. Oh my God. But all the more chilling 
because it is true. I'm just might as well, uh, might as well have that whole thing on the book, like based on a true story. Yeah, like a blur in the one of the blurbs or something. I'm just like holding. I'm just like grabbing onto that line. The mother-in-law was thrown down down the stairs. That's hilarious to me because like. <laughs> How many got how many people out there who 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 don't like their mother-in-laws are just fantasizing about <laughs> some some apparition throwing them down the stairs? <laughs> I bet the mom I bet Denise didn't like her mother-in-law, so she like just threw that extra detail in there. She's like, then the mother-in-law was thrown down the stairs because she should have lent me her car that one day. What a bitch. She pretty much deserved it. <laughs> Good Lord. All right. Do yeah. we have anything else on this? Not really. Not really. Except it does sound like it's more than likely not true. Uh, the quote, uh, the movie Amazon women on the moon uh, and the parody they did of Ripley's believe it or not, where uh, Henry Silva says, bullshit. <laughs> not i would probably say this bullshit yeah this is a first for me on this podcast i started it i I started in totally believing this and wanting to give it the benefit of the doubt but this just goes to show you that we are transparent and we are open to things being bullshit where me and mike aren't just uh have the wool over our eyes and we are our love of the show uh, uh, clouds our reason i'm totally willing to call out when something's bullshit so I think uh, uh, two out of the three segments on this one, we sided with, with uh, Johnny Law or the skeptics or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Uh, so and there you go. Well, not, not really. A two, yeah, two out of three. Yeah, a little bit, you know, with the whole suicide thing. I could definitely see that uh, with uh, um, Cindy James could definitely be suicide. But then we don't really know. for sh- I don't really know for sure exactly 100 percent which one it is, suicide or murder. But um, this one, I definitely, yeah, I side with the skeptics here. Yeah. There's a lot to be skeptical about the well, book about a demon car driving. Around. Well, I mean, it's just like it's just like when you someone that you really like, like if you're watching a game review on YouTube or something, and then then you see in the corner of the screen sponsored by the company who developed the game. At that point, you're instantly like, okay, this is bullshit because there's money involved, and anytime there's money involved, you're you know it it, it just taints the water for me. You know, yeah, the, the Tallman House ghost was such a great segment because the motherfucker was in silhouette. He didn't even want his name or face to be on camera. This bitch was all yeah. up in the camera, you know, talking about this, that and the other. And now I hear that she's got a book and now I'm calling her a bitch. Look at me. I've become a horrible <laughs> person now. No, no. You know, it, it's it's I, I think she's not really the best person either to exploit her son. If that is and even if it even if it isn't true to exploit your son like that, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's pretty, pretty bullshit. That's pretty shitty. It's a pretty bitchy thing to do. So, yeah. Anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, as always, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more. Uh, we'll have three more cases for you. Um, and maybe some of them will be bullshit. <laughs> maybe, uh, you know? they might. They, they might start, we might start off believing and we might end skeptics. Or the other way around. You never know. Yeah. You never know. Make sure you subscribe to Mike on his YouTube channel for more content. This man does awesome reviews on movies. They're very compelling. He doesn't have to rely on a lot of the uh, uh, flashy animation and graphics. He just sits down and talks about movies, and he's so compelling that I found it interesting (laughs) just listening to him talk, which I normally don't uh, 
like that book, but his his it's good. He's got a lot of insight into movies. If you like uh, random fun entertainment like video game reviews, me doing dressing up like a woman, uh, taste <laughs> testing British food, uh, vlogging about my sad emo life, add me www.youtube.com slash the dancing with ghosts two. Uh, and, uh, yeah, man, I see you people are out there on SoundCloud and all the other, you know, Stitcher and all, Podbean and all that. I hear, I see you guys listening, sub- subscribe and let's speak up, you know, uh, comment on whatever program you're using and, uh, tell us, uh, what you think and what, yeah. what segments you want us to cover. Exactly. We'd like to hear from you. 